0: We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. In the time we have here this evening, I'd uh, like for us to turn to Psalm 12 this evening, Psalm 12. And uh, I've been thinking about the Psalms a little more lately because in one of my classes, my Hebrew class, we've been uh, working through very in a very detailed manner Psalm 2. And um, I thought, well, I I know we've talked about that before. Maybe not me, but pastors taught on it. And, uh, but that got me to thinking about other Psalms and my mind, uh, and eyes were drawn to Psalm 12 and I thought maybe we could find some encouragement from it this evening. I know we can because it's God's word and, uh, he can teach us something. I, I know that. So why don't we just, uh, if you would go to the prayer one more time here as we ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we pray now as we look into your word, may you cause us to look to you, your perfect and pure word, and all of its riches and blessings and promises, and help us to trust in it more than anything else this world has to offer, in Christ's name, Amen. Psalm 12 is in the form of a lament psalm, a lament psalm. Uh, Generally speaking, obviously, psalms uh, the psalms are poetry, but we have various sub-genres of poetry, like a lament, perhaps others familiar to us more prominently throughout the psalms. There's psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of praise, psalm 2, which I talked about just a moment ago, is a, a royal psalm, or some might call it a psalm of enthronement. At the same time, often psalms might have uh, a number of these kind of subgenres all together. Uh, You know, the lament doesn't always stay in the form of a, a, a crisis, but often resolves in a confidence in God, in a praise of God. And so, keep that in mind, even, and you'll see that through Psalm 12 this evening, that it's not solely a lament or a prayer it often and usually resolves in some kind of confidence in what God is doing. A lament typically describes some crisis, as we said, whether individual or as a community, and often includes the following features. An address to the Lord, followed by some complaint, describing the situation that that person or persons are in, a request for help, And then an affirmation or praise of God and confidence in him. And Psalm 12 includes these elements uh, here that we find. Let me uh, read Psalm 12 and then we'll look at it more in detail here. To the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. As is often the case with the Psalms, we're not given much detail uh, to why this psalm was written. What is the occasion for it? Sometimes uh, the superscription will help us with that, but most often there is a purposeful vagueness to the situation that allows us as readers to enter into that situation and apply it to our own lives through the difficulties or crises that we are facing. And so that is the case here in Psalm 12, that we don't know the specific situation that David was experiencing when he wrote this Psalm. But the kind of feelings that he has through it are very evident in the emotions. has evidently felt feels overwhelmed by the excessive wickedness of the world the moral compass of the world caused him to feel hopeless much like elijah felt remember in first kings chapter 18 and he cries out to the lord feeling as if he's the only one left the only righteous prophet the only prophet of the lord left in the land similarly david seems to be experiencing that in his own soul and heart that He is alone. The world around him was characterized by deception and tyranny, and he feels as if there is no godly person left but himself. Our world today is not too much different, is it? Deception, false flattery, fraud, propaganda, and double talk dominate the news, politics, in society at large, dishonesty functions on all levels, but it becomes malicious when people in positions of power or authority use it to destroy the weak for their own gain. Perhaps as we watch the news and interact with people around us, we find ourselves asking this question, who can we trust or in what can we trust? What they, what can they read that is true? That is nothing but the truth. And so, as we look at this psalm this evening, I want to, I want to present to you, as I feel the psalmist is doing, three truths that help guide us through these kinds of feelings. Number one, when the deception and tyranny of the world causes us to feel hopeless. We should turn to God for help. Verses 1 through 4 teach us this very truth. Verse 1 begins with the imperative, help, help. Have you ever lacked the words to say in a situation like this, but to help? Such a cry reflects the urgency of this person as well as the dependence upon the Lord in this crisis. The word help commonly means save or set free or liberate, and so in that way the psalmist is simply saying, Save me, O Lord, or save us, as it were, to all those who are in a similar experience. And such a request implies that there indeed is a crisis, some difficulty that the psalmist is facing or you are facing in your own life. In the the occasion here, the psalmist has observed that on the one hand, good persons appear to have disappeared from the land, and on the other hand, the wicked are rampant. Though obviously you know, not true in the most literal sense, that every godly person ceases to exist or to be there, the psalmist is moved to express his deep feelings that there are no longer faithful godly followers of the Lord. Perhaps you have felt that way as well in your workplace, in your school setting, even in your interaction just with those around you in the community, on the news, where are the faithful, godly people? Inasmuch as it is true that there are less, we feel today, godly people than maybe there were in the past, though I'm sure in the past people felt that way as well. This presents a real danger because the lack of faithful followers of the Lord allows for wickedness to run rampant without restrain. And we see that today. We feel that tension. While the faithful seem to have vanished, the psalmist observes that the wickedness is prevalent. They, in verse 2, is not the faithful because the psalmist feels as if the faithful person, the godly man, ceases. He's he's not there. He's disappeared from among the sons of men. So in verse 2 then, the they that the psalmist speaks of is not the faithful ones, but the rest of the world, the ones characterized by deception and tyranny. These people are characterized by their lying lips, their idle speech. Even to their own neighbors, they speak lies. They speak uh, speak flattering words to those around them, but their heart's intention is otherwise. Look with me at verse 2. The psalmist writes, They speak idly, everyone, with his neighbor. That is, everyone is just speaking idle words, or as the ESV puts it, they speak lies to their neighbors. They do this with flattering lips and a double heart. Flattering lips carries this idea of smooth speech, speech that presents itself one way, but the heart's intention is otherwise. So really these are not synonymous ideas, but really uh, emphasizing the point that they speak what seems to be trustworthy and smooth words, but in actuality... They're speaking with a double heart, with other intentions in mind. Such prevalent deception can cause us to say, who can I trust? Or maybe say this even, there's no one that I can trust. The final part of the psalmist's request to God was for God to put a stop to the rampant wickedness. And often we pray this kind of prayer Even this evening, we talk about those in refuge camps, talk about those who are oppressed by the wickedness of men. And so the psalmist prays this kind of prayer in verse 3 and 4. Look there with me if you would. He writes, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, in the tongue that speaks proud things, Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? The psalmist appeals to God to enact justice upon those who proudly declare themselves as self-autonomous. You see that there in the language of those who speak? You know, our tongue will prevail. Who can overcome us? We'll have our way. Who is Lord over us? People who are lords over themselves are not concerned with the needs of others, much less the truth of God's word. They're not concerned for your truth, your neighbor's truth, certainly not God's truth. Such arrogance that they speak is folly, of course, we know, and from our perspective, from God's perspective, And we know they will be judged by their words and deeds before the Lord one day. But yet, we still have this tension of, Lord, do something about this situation. We know he will one day, but we need some relief in the moment. That justice may be delayed, but we find assurance in the fact that one day it will fully be enacted. Not only when deception and tyranny of the world causes us to feel hopeless should we turn to God for help and prayer, but secondly, we can expect God to preserve the godly. Look with me at verse 5. The Lord speaks here, saying, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. We see here in verse 5, God responds to the prayer of the psalmist. Do you trust that God will respond to your prayer of need? When you pray a prayer like that that we find in verses 1 to 4, do you believe that God will respond? I hope you do. I think we are certainly being taught here that we can expect God to respond and to preserve the godly. The reason for this divine intervention is the oppression of the poor and the sighing of the needy. It is because of these two things, synonymous as they may be, that God responds. It is for these reasons, it's as if he's saying, that now I will arise. I think this demonstrates that God is intimately involved with the things of this world. He sees it, He observes it, and he is intimately involved with the peoples whom are feeling the consequences of the deception and tyranny of this world. Such a response demonstrates the compassion that God has toward those who turn to him for help in time of need and hopelessness. God's intervention for the poor and needy is seen in the uh, decisive statement, now I will arise. God is going to act now on behalf of those who long for his deliverance from the deceptive and tyrannical peoples of the world. Deliverance in this context does not mean immediate removal of the circumstances, though. We have to caution ourselves against that. And I think the psalmist certainly understands this as well, because look what he says in verse 8. Jumping ahead for a moment, he says, "...the wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men." And so he observes at the beginning of the psalm that there is deception, there is tyranny, And by the end of the psalm, he recognizes this will continue to go on, at least for a time. And so, what the psalmist is praying for and what God is promising is not mere removal of the circumstance, but help and safety amidst living in a sinful world. And that intervention was to set the people in safety who long for it. That is God's promise that is what he is going to do we see in verse 5 he says now i will arise says the lord i will set him in the safety for which he yearns who is who is the him or he here it is the one who has called upon the lord in verses 1 through 4 those who long for god's safety will turn to him and ask for it. God's promise to set him in safety in verse 5 is a direct answer to the psalmist's prayer to save or help him in verse 1. You see that connection there? The psalmist begins by saying, help, Lord. God replies, I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Do you trust that God will answer that prayer and preserve you? I believe the psalmist is teaching us to do that. So not only is he teaching us that we should turn to God for help when the deception and the tyranny of the world causes us to feel hopeless. Secondly, that we should expect God to preserve the godly. Thirdly, when deception and tyranny of the world causes us to feel hopeless, we should trust God's pure in faithful promises and we see this in verses 6 through 8. Turn your attention there. The Psalmist writes the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified 7 times. You shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them for this generation from this generation forever. Here we see in the last three verses, David expresses his confidence in the words of the Lord. It is not a subjective feeling that he he has about God's words. It is a fact that his words have been proven to be pure. In a world where it is difficult to believe what anyone says, friends or enemies, it is a comfort to know God's word is completely trustworthy especially as it promises deliverance for the peoples of God. God's word is clear, direct, true, and reliable. That's what the psalmist is reflecting upon in verses 6 and 7 when he says the words of the Lord are pure words. They are true. How do we know this? Because Like silver, they are tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. To make his point, David uses the image of a refining ore in a furnace in the earth. In the process, impurities would be removed from the metal being refined. Of course, it might take several attempts before all impurities are removed in that kind of process. And What David then is doing through this imagery is showing and demonstrating that God's word is pure. Not that it has to be purified through this refining process, but using the metaphor to demonstrate that God's word is the end result. It is pure. It is true. David is making a comparison with that process here. It is as if the word of God has been put through a process To remove all impurities, such as misleading or deceptive statements, that process was done to perfection. Hence, seven times, often the number of completion and perfection. Obviously, the word of God was never at a stage where there were were impurities in it, but as we said, it is demonstrating that the, the end result of that process is a pure word, which God's word is. David is simply emphasizing how perfect the word of God is. It can be trusted completely in everything it says. It is the only word that can be trusted. And so when deception and tyranny rage, and we ask ourselves this question, whose word can we trust? The psalmist is causing us to reflect on the fact that God's word can be trusted. Because God's word is pure, what that word has promised is certain. Thus, verse 7 reiterates the psalmist's expectation that God will preserve them from their particular generation. The word generation here can describe the general character of a group of people who share the spirit of the age. For instance, as we see in the New Testament, a generation of vipers those who are characterized by a certain kind of quality. In this sense, then, the psalmist is speaking of a generation that is characterized by deceptive lips, flattering lips, tongues that speak proud things, as verse 3 tells us. In this sense, then, it does not here simply describe those who lived at a certain time, but those who shared the spirit of the time, which in this case was arrogance and deception in that way then we can apply it to our time as well though those uh, during this day had passed gone many centuries ago those today are also characterized by deceptive lips and arrogance so as we conclude our time here this evening Let us remind ourselves that though the deception and tyranny of the world may cause us at times to feel helpless and hopeless, in response we should turn to God for help. Secondly, in those times we can expect God to preserve the godly. And thirdly, we should trust God's pure and faithful promises God's word is pure. It is truth. John 17, 17 tells us. What it reports is completely accurate. What it teaches is proper and right. What it promises is sure. People may not always like what the Bible says, but it tells the truth. They therefore can build their lives on it. If God's word is perfect and true, then as a result, we should be looking to it for hope and help when we feel that there is no godly person left. I pray that that will be our direction. I often think of stories as an illustration of uh, pilots who, when they get in a fog, what do they have to rely upon to get them out? The instruments And there's the sad stories of people who are pilots in those situations that don't trust the instrument, but instinct. you know, they feel they're up when they're going down, and oftentimes the end result is terrible. I think that analogy is applicable here that in times when deception is raging, when we no longer know who or what to trust. We have a sure and pure moral compass, God's word and his faithful promises to keep us to the end. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray this evening, maybe there are some of us who have this feeling even today, Lord, that who do we trust? What do we look to? What do we believe, even our own neighbors, as it were, perhaps speaking lies and deception, much less the rulers and leaders of this world. In all of this, Lord, may we not cease to believe that, Lord, there are a faithful few. Help us to not be hopeless, but to pray, to turn to you for help. Lord, to trust that you will act and preserve us to the end. And Lord, to trust in the pure and faithful promises of your word through it all. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.